Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, we're going to start the second chapter of Daniel now this morning. It will take us four sermons to go through the second chapter. Let me read verses 1 to 16. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, Now it's interesting, at this verse, all the way through chapter 7, the language changes from Hebrew to Aramaic, that whole section. Aramaic was the native language of the Babylonians and the Persians. And Daniel wrote it in Aramaic so that they would understand, especially this section of Scripture, because it pertains to them. Now, that's one of the interesting things about Daniel. It's in two languages. Aramaic was a Semitic language but different from Hebrew. So the, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Of course they would. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm, If you do not make known to me the dream and the interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and a great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. We'll come to what he's actually saying to them. It's interesting. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Well, I guess they're part of that group. They're now in the king's service as advisors. Then Daniel replied, with prudence and the discretion and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So chapter 2 is all about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as William has already mentioned. And this dream is a revelation from God to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a revelation of the present, but especially the future. But it pertains to the present because it's going to be applied to Nebuchadnezzar himself. And what is unfolded here is a, the succession of four world empires, beginning with Babylon and the four, four world empires and their nature, the kind of, what kind of a kingdom they were, is in the dream. But the emphasis is on the last fifth kingdom, which appears as a stone that falls and hits the image and crushes and breaks the image, which represents the kingdom of God. So this is what the chapter is about. Now, it's interesting that Daniel is going to have a vision in chapter 7 that parallels what is unfolded here to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Daniel has a vision of the same thing, the four successive world empires as beasts, four beasts. And again, there is the kingdom of God that the details are different. There's more in chapter 7 about the kingdom of God. So this is what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. I'm not going to do chapter 7 together. I want to treat it separately because there's a lot more there that we want to consider. So first of all, in verses 1 to 4, very simply, Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream. He had this dream. Notice it was in the second year of his reign. So that's soon after he came to power. Daniel and his companions are still in training. Remember, they were going to train for three years, so they're not really finished with their education in all the literature of the Babylonians and the language and all of that, but yet he's going to be found among that group. He's going to be uh, susceptible to Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. So he, this is in the second year. This is 603 to 602. These are key dates. The book opens with Nebuchadnezzar coming to power in the third year of Jehoiakim. 
at 605. That's a very important date in Jewish history, secular history, and the Babylonian Empire. Now we're 603, 602. And notice it says dreams. Did you catch that? That it's plural, as though it were more than one dream. But then it changes back to the singular. Uh, in the third verse, I had a dream. But he talks about dreams. Why is it plural and then singular? It's because his singular dream had many subjects. There were very weighty matters that are unfolded in this singular dream. So it's spoken of as his dreams. And notice it, it troubled Nebuchadnezzar, just as um, Herod the Great was troubled when all the Magi came from the east into Jerusalem, asking, where is he that it's born king of the Jews? Nebuchadnezzar is agitated by this. He's disturbed. It's a, a deep disturbance within his soul over this dream. So the very idea that he is upset by it indicates that the dream in some way was alarming to him, although he can't really remember the details of it. And it says that sleep left him. We all know what that means. How many times does sleep leave us when we go to bed with something heavy on our hearts and we just, we can't sleep? We got insomnia, not going to be able to rest quietly tonight. So this, this really bothered him, the king. He wasn't used to this. He's being troubled. Notice God is the one that's troubling him too. Yahweh can trouble the troublers. So the king summons, verse 2, then the king, he commanded the magicians. They didn't have a choice here. He's not asking them to come. He is summoning them with all of his authority as the king of the empire. And they have to come into his presence. And notice the whole list of them here. And as you read through the book of Daniel, you notice there's several lists in various chapters of these same individuals. Sometimes it's two or three of the names mentioned. Sometimes it's a fourth. Who were these men? Well, these are his royal advisors. They were the professionals. Some even say they were the health professionals. Interesting way to look at it. They, they represent the different guilds or classes of seers or soothsayers, those who predict the future, who understand the meaning of dreams, can interpret dreams, who can reveal hidden knowledge, who can resolve mysteries, and so on. But there's many different kinds of them that are mentioned because they have different approaches, but they, it kind of all boils down to that they were skilled in the magical arts, in what is known as divination, the obtaining of secret knowledge. Now, I don't want to go through all of these. We already touched on a couple in the previous sermon, but I'll just mention the Chaldeans are singled out here as the ones that engage in conversation with the king. They were a distinguished class of the wise men of Babylon. Most believe that they were 
um, astrologers. In fact, there could be a connection between the Magi who came from the east and came to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews that was born, that it came from this group of men, the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 4, verse 3, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Dream is 14 times in this chapter, so it's all about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, obviously. Uh, Dreams were considered messages from the gods, and they often caused fear and alarm among those who had the dreams, meaning that there was a revelation of something that was negative, bad, that was impending. I am troubled to know the dream. Now, there is discussion in the commentators about did he forget entirely the dream or did he remember some of the, some of the dream or what? We can't really put our finger on it, but it sounds like he did want somebody to recount to him the details of it because he may have lost the details. Just like when we have a dream, we know we woke up from something. We can kind of piece it together a little bit, but yet we can't remember the details like was in the dream itself. I think it's similar to that. He, He wanted the details. He knew that something occurred in this dream that implicated him and his kingdom, and it's important to him to to know it. So the Chaldeans, they respond, and they they say that this is the etiquette of the court back in those days. Oh, king, live forever. They're wishing him a long life. They're kind of flattering him a little bit here with this, but this is how they addressed him. Yeah, tell us, tell your servants the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. They thought it was going to be very simple. They had, they had the books of dreams. I mentioned this last time. Among the Babylonian literature, there were dream books with examples of dreams that people had and then the interpretation and the consequences of the dream. All of that was a, a manual for these men. So they, they, could, they could figure it out. They'd be able to give an answer to the king if they were just told what the dream was. Very simple. Now in verses 5 to 11, we have this crisis now that comes up for the wise men. Very, it's a very serious one. What happens? I think he... He really caught him off guard with what he wanted them to do. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. Don't you, I'm not going to budge on this. I'm, this is my demand. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. So imagine that. The, the impossibility of that. This is, he's asking them to do the impossible. But they, they had their claims to be able to resolve mysteries and be able to penetrate secret things and reveal hidden knowledge. And 
So he's kind of putting them to the test. Are these a bunch of frauds that are my advisors, or are they the real thing? I'm going to test them with this. Make known to me the dream and what it means. Now, he probably did have anxiety over the very fact that he could not himself entirely recount the dream. There was an old saying among the Babylonians. If a man cannot remember the dream he saw, it means his God is angry with him. Now, it comes out of some ancient literature from there. So Nebuchadnezzar could have had that in the back of his mind that I can't remember this dream. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. He had fear, anxiety about this, that he couldn't recall it. And then he tells them what's going to happen to them. They're going to be torn from limb to limb. This is not an exaggeration. They were going to be executed, perhaps dismembered. Their bodies is like the worst thing that he could impose on them. And their houses laid in ruins. So he's going to destroy them if they do not come through with the, in, the dream and what it means. This, the severity of the penalty actually agrees with how the rulers and the kings were in the ancient Near East. So this is not an exaggeration. This is, what, this is how the rulers were, the kings in the ancient world. On the other hand, he's going to reward them greatly if they deliver on this. So again, for the second time, let the king tell the servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. Now the king's getting a little frustrated with them. And he said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. In other words, they're stalling for time. He's accusing him of that because you see that the word from me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. And you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me. What he's saying here is you're you're stalling for time so you can get together and collude And agree with something to tell me that'll be, you know what, a bunch of, they're going to have something to tell him what his dream means. So he's accusing them not only for stalling time, but for being traitors to him. Because he adds, to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. That's sort of a euphemism for the idea until I die and another king comes to power and then you're really off the hook. So they're stalling for time, hoping he's going to just be replaced perhaps in a short time. He's seeing right through them what their motives were. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall notice Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. His logic is perfect. So he's being 
unreasonable with them and unfair and perhaps a little crazy. But at the same time, he's sort of smart about this because he's telling, if you can tell me what the dream is, then I know the explanation you give me is going to be accurate. It's going to be a reliable explanation if you can tell me what my dream was. So that's how he's working through it. This is sort of a test as to the reliability, the truthfulness of his advisors. Now the Chaldeans answer him, and they say, notice, there's not a, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Oh, really? Or are they going to be surprised? But from a human standpoint, that's true. Apart from God revealing the dream to Daniel, which he's going to do, we'll see that in the next section. God does reveal to Daniel what his dream was. It's an amazing thing. Otherwise, there would be no possible way to know what someone's dream was. <laughs> where, where do you even start? Give me a hint as to kind of what it was about. Well, it was about a statue. That's all I'm going to tell you. No, they're not given any information. So they're, they're right about that. From a human point of view, there's not a man who can make known to the king what the dream is. So they're really telling Nebuchadnezzar he's being unfair with them. And then he says, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or encounter. This is somewhat of an insult to him, I think. They're, they're totally telling him that he is being completely unreasonable with them. But note verse 11. This is, this is the interesting thing that they say here. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king. Okay, we got that. Except the gods. But the problem is they don't dwell with flesh. So what he's saying is the deities they believed in, they don't cohabit with us. We, they're not with us really here so that we can have a conversation with them and they can tell us the, the dream. So they acknowledge that the information, the, the knowledge of the dream would have to come from a deity. But it's impossible because their gods don't dwell with men in the sense of another. Boy, can you just think of where we can go with this? Now, did they seek their gods? Well, they probably thought, it's why seek them? They, they can't tell us what the dream is. There's no communication between the gods and them. They don't dwell with us. So there's no prayer to their deities to reveal the dream. Yeah, these are the experts in the occultic arts. And they could not penetrate this veil of secrecy. Nebuchadnezzar is now made aware of that, that they are very limited in what they can supposedly reveal in the way of secret things, secret knowledge, esoteric knowledge. This perfectly sets the scene for Daniel right here. 
and his God. By way of contrast. So verses 12 to 16 is about the king's decree and Daniel's intervention. So this has really infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. What the Chaldeans said to him. No one can reveal this dream. You're being completely unreasonable with us to demand that we tell you your dream. The gods cannot reveal it. So that pretty much is telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is utterly impossible. So in his wrath, he sends Arioch off And he's the executioner, by the way. He is the executioner. They call him the butcher, the slaughterer. And he goes out to round up the wise men who were probably in various locations within the complex of the palace of Nebuchadnezzar to begin exterminating them. So when they come to Daniel and his three friends, who are also living among them, but Daniel and his three friends were not called into Nebuchadnezzar's presence yet. They're still very young. They're still in training to be wise men. So they were left alone to begin with. But now they're part of who's going to be killed. Now, just notice Daniel. I want to focus on him because he's, he's amazing here. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Notice how calm he is. This is a life and death situation. Daniel does not appear to be upset. And he's not questioning the severity of Nebuchadnezzar's penalty. What he is interested in knowing is why is it so urgent? That's what he wants to know. Why is the king wanting to do this right now? Kill all the wise men. So he's, he's going to inquire about the urgency Why is the decree of the king so urgent? So, Arioch lays it out to him, what what has happened. So he's he's summarizing to him the the issue. Daniel, he keeps calm under amazing pressure. He's thinking clearly. He's thinking quickly. And he makes a request of Nebuchadnezzar to give him some time, and he will show him. Notice the interpretation. He doesn't have to say, I will show him the dream and the interpretation. He simply says, I will tell him what his dream means. Daniel's character is something in this context. Again, the wisdom of Daniel... This is why Nebuchadnezzar honors him. He steps in to do what the wise, the other wise men could not do. Really, he intervenes on their behalf, so their lives were spared along with his own. 
We don't know if any of the wise men died before they came to Daniel. It's possible that some were killed. We don't know. The language might suggest that some did lose their lives. But for the most part, Daniel stops this extermination of the wise men. So this is an amazing exercise of faith on Daniel's part. To me, in my, as I was thinking about this, what you could compare it to, it would be like somebody who was going to pray for somebody that was had a major problem that needed prayer, and they could say before they prayed that the Lord is going to heal you. There's some people who do that. To me, that's like putting yourself out on a limb. What if God doesn't answer your prayer, but you've told the person God's going to answer and heal them? This was an, a, an amazing exercise of faith on Daniel's part. He wants time, and we know what he needed time for. It wasn't to study or to think about the matter. He wanted time to seek the Lord in prayer along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he's going to, next time he goes to them and asks them to join with him in prayer. God says, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not. There's a couple things I want to say in conclusion. So that's, that's the text. This is the meaning There's a couple of things we can draw out of this that are really important. First of all, it's a reminder to us, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know this dream so bad. And all of his advisors were engaged in knowledge that pertained to usually knowledge of the future, gaining knowledge of the future. Because the occultic world is very much engaged in that. Wanting to know secret knowledge. Nobody knows the future. But the knowledge of the future is one of man's greatest pursuits. Has been. If man could know anything, he'd want to know, you know, really, what's in my future? What's going to happen? Remember the the apostles in Acts 1? They wanted to know that. They asked Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. We all want to know what is God planning to do? What is, what is in the future for our own lives, for the world, for all of us together? But these men, they were completely helpless to penetrate the darkness and the secrecy that hides the future. But there is... One person who knows the future, and it's the God of the Bible. I gave, I gave a sermon once at the other church years ago on God's knowledge of the future. All, of, all from Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. Isaiah 46, 10 says, verse 9, God makes the claim, there's no one like me. Well, he could say that about... His nature in many different... There's no God who's merciful like me. There's no God who is long-suffering and patient like me. 
But the thing he focuses on, not his attributes in that sense, the thing that he says that he is unlike the other deities is that he knows the end from the beginning. He's talking about the course of history. History is, a, as I've said several times, history is not circular in the Bible. We're not on a merry-go-round. It is linear. It has a beginning and an end. History. The beginning with the world when God created everything, and then when it's come to the end of the Bible, when it's wrapped up and the eternal state begins. It's a, it's a line like that. And God has his plan all laid out. And he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the whole thing. It's like the view of the helicopter looking down on the Rose Parade. The Rose Parade is five miles long. But from way up in the sky, a camera looking down can see all of Colorado Boulevard, can see the whole parade, the order of the floats, the whole thing from that vantage point. This is what God is saying. He knows it all. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. And he tells us the reason he knows the future. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, I will accomplish my purpose. My counsel shall stand. The reference to his counsel and his purpose is, is talking about the fact he has a plan. And he sees the whole thing. He, he knows it because he willed it. So God knows the future. And sometimes in the Bible, he gives us a peek into the future when he gives prophecy. This is why the Bible is 100% accurate when it lays out what is going to happen in the future. The details of the coming of the Messiah are laid out. He's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's in the book of Jeremiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so on. This is why God, God knows the future in totality and he can tell us what it is before it happens. So this is the uniqueness of Yahweh in contrast to the powerlessness of these occultic practices of the enchanters, the astrologers, the magicians, the Chaldeans of the Babylonian Empire. Secondly, the, the failure of the Babylonian wise men, to me, it underscores the amazing gift of the Bible for us. Just think of it. If we didn't have the Bible, we would probably be turning to people like that fortune tellers, psychics, for that knowledge because we're earnest about knowing something in the future. This is why people go, go to these people. We don't need to do that. The future is in God's hands. He knows the future. Our life is in his hands. He's declared in his word that we or not to go to those people, but to just trust in him. 
he has revealed the most significant future events that we should care about the most. So the things that are the most important, God has told us in the future what it's going to be. Well, what are those? Well, how the world's going to end. Christ is going to come a second time. There's going to be a resurrection, a judgment, and so on. Those are, those are the facts we need to know, what's in the future, so that we can plan our life around those coming events, whether they occur in our lifetime or not. So those are, those are the facts of the future that God has told us that they might have their due influence upon us right now and impact the way we live. But also, now thinking about what the Chaldeans said about the gods not dwelling with flesh made me think of Yahweh, again, in contrast to the pantheon of deities in the Babylonian culture. The true God, the living God, he does come into our world to dwell with us. The incarnation. What a contrast we see here. And why did the Lord Jesus Christ come? Well, his main business was to deal with the problem of man's alienation from God, man's guilt, guilty record before God, to restore the relationship that had been ruined by man's sin. That was his number one reason for coming, to save his people from their sins. But that was not the only reason he came. He told Pilate, for this reason was I born And for this reason I came into the world, that I may bear witness to the truth. Now that's a a whole different angle on the purpose of the incarnation. Remember what John says in the first chapter of John? No man has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He has exegeted him, is what it says in the original. He's expounded God to us. He has revealed God. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal information and knowledge to us that otherwise we would have no understanding of. Now, from the standpoint of theology, there's natural... We make this distinction between natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation has to do with the knowledge that we gain from the world around us about God. And Romans 1 tells us we can know there's a creator. He is a great power. He's a total genius. When you think about the variety of things that he's created, what an imagination Yahweh has. And... Those are certain things I can know about him from creation. That's natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. But that information that we gain from creation is not enough to close the gap between God and myself and deal with my alienation from him. I don't really realize I'm alienated from him. So we learn from special revelation, what we have in the Bible, that records what Jesus taught. 
we learn about the fact that God is three persons and yet he's one God. So the church defined that as the triune nature of God. I I can't figure that out from creation that God is triune. That has to be revealed to me. That is special knowledge that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Furthermore, I wouldn't know that it was the Son who left heaven's glory and came into this world on a mission of redemption. I don't learn that from creation. I learn that from the Bible. Do you see the difference between natural and special revelation? So my point is, is that when the Lord Jesus came into this world to dwell with us, to dwell with flesh, to communicate with flesh, and like the Babylonian gods who did not communicate with flesh, they don't dwell with flesh, as they said. They're giving us a peek into their theology, what their viewpoint is there with that statement. This is so in great contrast to our great God, our glorious God. He does communicate. He's he's a transcendent being. But he's not so transcendent that he does not condescend to reveal himself to us. And he's very personal and can be known. That is the God we worship. So there you have Daniel 2, the beginning of this great chapter that unfolds the future. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.